Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wake up, everybody. There's a podcast to do and a legend to talk about. As the story goes, in the late 1880s, some friends in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, went out into the woods on Candlemas Day to look for groundhogs. Why they were looking for groundhogs for Candlemas Day? That's none of your business. Keep out of my woods, government. This outing became a tradition, and a local newspaper editor called these adventurers the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club. Starting in 1887, the search became an official event, all revolving around a groundhog called Punxsutawney Phil. And to this day, we still celebrate that event on Groundhog Day, when Phil comes out of his little hole in the stump and observes his own shadow or doesn't. And then we have winter or something. But the point is, the other Groundhog Day tradition is the movie itself, Groundhog Day. A perennial classic where Bill Murray is trapped in a time loop and has to repeat that same day over and over until he gets it right. According to the website Obsessed with Film, they figured out that he spends approximately 12,403 days, just under 34 years, in order to account for becoming a master piano player, ice sculptor, Andy McDowell lover, etc. And every day he meets Ned Ryerson, an insurance salesman, and that role is played by my guest today, Stephen Tobolowsky who is in everything and is so memorable in everything that he's in that you feel like you already know him. He's one of the best storytellers in the Hollywood biz. You know him from Spaceballs, Mississippi Burning, Basic Instinct, Sneakers, Memento, TV shows like Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Glee, my favorite, Deadwood, which we talk about a little bit. He also has a great podcast called The Tobolowski Files, which is kind of like the old stories of Gene Shepard mixed with a modern-day Hollywood twist. It's really fantastic. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Stick around at the end for a great new segment that I think is just going to change some lives. And uh, let's connect last episode's guest with this episode. DC Pearson in the TV show Community to Stephen Tobolowsky in the TV show Community. There it is, the shortest connection I've ever made. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon? I don't think so. One degree of Matt Bacon. Huh? Begin. The film, Groundhog Day, the year 1993. The role, Ned Ryerson. The actor, Stephen Tobolowsky. Tobolowsky. It's, it'll be covered in the goddamn interview. Stephen Tobolowski, or Stephen Tobolowski, 
before we begin an interview, let's clear this up. This is this is this is a question. Now there are people out there who may have heard an explanation of this name, but I have news for you. I have new information that I'm going to impart on this show. Is this an I was there too exclusive? This is this is an exclusive. Oh boy. So the traditional story is this. I, I never knew how to pronounce my name because different people in my family pronounce it different ways. Tobolowski, Toblowski, Tobolowski, different ways. So I asked the resident historian of the family, Uncle Nathan, this is about <laughs> about 12 years ago. I said, Uncle Nathan, how do we pronounce our name? Uh, Tobolowski, Tobolowski says you can pronounce it any way you want because it's not your name. And I'm in my 50s. What? Not my name. He says, yeah, when grandfather came over to the United States, he didn't come through Ellis Island but through Galveston. The man asked him, who are you? But grandfather did not know who, but he knew in German the who, whoa, was where. Yeah. So grandfather thought he was asking, where are you from? So he answered, Abram from Toblosk. The officer did not understand. So he said, your name is Abram Tobolowsky. So I got my name the same way Don Corleone got his That's name right. in The Godfather. Now, the exclusive is this. This was the mythology that existed for the last 12 years. However, two years ago, I went to breakfast with my brother's son, Andrew, who was working at a law office pro bono downtown, and he found some old photocopies of a building in downtown Plano called Tobolowsky Brothers. It was some sort of candy store, something like that, that predates my grandfather coming to the United States by something like eight years. So the story of Don Corleone and me is a lie of some sort. It's some sort of false mythology, and I still have no idea how to pronounce my name. So it's it's my choice. I can, so you have free reign. Let's go with Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I have a sort of s- semi-similar story. Uh, my last name is Gorley, and I was, of course, uh, just razzed to no end by elementary school students. Gurley, Gurley, Gurley man, Gurley man. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I was raised a Gorley, and I was like, no, it's Gorley. I was very polite. And then I went to Ireland and was able to go to my old family farm and meet the man who now runs it. He's not a Gorley anymore, but he knew them. And he goes, oh, you're the Gurleys. And I go, oh, no, it's Gorley. He goes, no, it's Gurley. <laughs> and I was like, God damn. Anyway. Oh, Lord. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but uh, apparently... In the building in Woodstock, Illinois, where your scene is shot for Groundhog Day, there's a little plaque that says Ned's Corner. Did you know about that? I commemorated that plaque. You did? I did. So you definitely knew about it. They flew me out to Woodstock and for me to commemorate it, and they put me up in the same room that I stayed on when I shot Groundhog Day, except now it's been done over, and it's oh so posh. Really? Oh, so Because is it, is it a tourist destination it's in some ways? It's a tourist yeah. destination, and they have in the bathroom now, they have the little basket with soaps in it that are hand-wrapped, oh, which I hate oh, those because, yeah. you know, your hands are wet, you're reaching for the soap, and right. the thing's all wrapped up, and you get the paper all over. It's you terrible. have to think ahead. You have, you have to do to that first, ahead. but who does? Who does? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you may not know this, but we've actually in some ways met before. When I was a young grad student at Cal State University of Long Beach, the Yale of the West Coast, as our chair would call it until he was fired for plagiarism, uh, 
a mutual friend of ours, John Shepard, brought you down to speak about acting. Do you know? Do you remember this at all? Yes. Yeah. And I remember being so taken by your stories. And so this is a bit of a full circle thing for me. I cannot believe this. Yeah, this is this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> what was what what let me ask you, what story was it that triggered you into this career of podcasting? Of your stories? Yes. That got me into podcasting? Yes. Oh, it'd be hard to choose one. <laughs> but probably something from Sneakers, because I remember that was the movie that I most soundly knew you from mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Groundhog Day would have been out by then, too, because this was yeah. 93, and I was in grad school, I don't know, 95 through 98. So definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a treat. Now, we were LA adjacent, but we didn't get many real actors down there. This was a repertory company, but let's face it, we were teachers. I, I remember they called me into. uh Around that time, I, I did a couple. What what do they call those things? I wonder if they still have a career day, even though oh, people yeah. don't have careers anymore. <laughs> yeah. But but they had a career day, That's and they basically. brought me in at Beverly Hills High School to do the career day for being a young prof- to being a professional actor. And so there were like a hundred twenty kids in this room, and they had me and this other gentleman speaking. Now the other gentleman was an actor, very good actor, but his full time job was in real estate. Mm. And he was talking about what a wonderful profession it is to be an actor. <laughs> and I said so I got up and I said, Well that's all well and good, but he is in real estate. So you he's know, so, covered. So he's covered. Yeah. So I, I said to them, <laughs> How many of you here want to be famous? And everybody like raises their hands. And I said, How many of you want to make a lot of money? Raise their hands. How many of you are willing to be an actor if you're not famous, if you don't make any money, if you never get cast, if you have to take a second job to act in a local play for no money, leaving your family at home and not get reviewed and perform for three or four people on a night? How many of you are willing to be an actor? And these two girls raised their hand. And I said, you're the only two that are going to make it. Uh, That was sobering for a lot of them, I bet. (laughs) So let's talk a bit about Ned Ryerson mm. from Groundhog Day, and then we'll open it up to all of your varied roles. Mm. Um, so I, in doing my research, obviously rewatched this film, and I can't help but feel like your part, he's not the first person he meets every day that shows you it's going to be different, except your part is sort of the temperature of the day, because he meets the guy in the hall, and they have a similar exchange, and then the lady down in the bed and breakfast, mm-hmm. but yours is the first that starts to really signify his mood. He he has a, I don't know, a b- bit of an interchange with you every time. And I felt like we should go through the days. Day one is the setup, right? <laughs> Did you shoot all of these back to back? This is an answer which you probably didn't expect. Harold Ramis, when he was shooting this movie, was aware that the character, one of the main characters of the film is going to be the damn day. Right. The day okay. has to be the same. Okay, yeah. Whether Bill is there for... 160 days, or as Harold Ramis said, 10,000 years, that day has to be the same. So Harold Ramis had not chosen what the day was going to look like. So all of us, Bill, me, we, all of us who were shooting the street scenes were on will notifies, which for the people who aren't actors, that means you aren't uh, deliberately put on the script. You don't have a specific scene to shoot. However, you are a phone call away from having to work. So we had to shoot those scenes in every weather condition. So Harold Ramis could later edit together. So we shot those street scenes in rain, in snow. Every one of them? In fog, in sunshine, every one of them. And 
you would get a phone call saying, uh, it's raining. Come on down, Stephen. Let's do the street scene. This was before we really had cell phones. Uh-huh. You know, so yeah. you're standing by the phone. <laughs> and this had a lot of what you call ripple effects, which I think really informed the film. And that is no one had a day off. No one had a schedule. And so usually when you're you're out of town, you're like boozing it up or yeah. like partying or, or no one could hang out. You were always on the edge that Oh, I may have to run down and do this scene. So you're always working in your head, and then bam, you're down doing the show. So everybody was sharp. Nobody was goofing off. Everybody wow. was ready to work every second. And I think the I know one other director, great director in American film history, did this, and that was uh John Ford. He kept everybody ready on set because when the clouds or weather condition was such, he brought them in to shoot. So Bill and I shot those street scenes multiple times, uh, many, many times. The the first scene, you'll notice in the film, that scene, I can't. I believe it was shot with a Steadicam maybe. Each scene is written slightly different and shot with a slightly different camera technique. I didn't notice that. So oh. on one, one time Bill and I did it, one of the versions, the camera was on sticks and just kind of followed us. One time it was on a dolly and pullback. One, it was on Steadicam. One, we did it as a long shot with a long lens. The camera was at the very end of the street and they just dialed it with us as we walked because Harold Ramis wanted it to look slightly different, Uh even though it was kind of the same. So did you find that you uh, remember your takes being better on sunny days and you're bummed that the overcast... (laughs) One went in or the rain one. I mean, do you have any recollection? Because that that would be tough to do five different arcs and just hope that the best one gets in, but it's more dependent on the weather. Yeah, there there were so many there were so many stress factors. Uh, I re- yeah. It, first of all, as an actor, I try not to be a judge of which of my takes are good. That's good. I leave that for the cameraman and the director because they're always seeing more than me. But I had an enormous stress factor in doing that because I was doing another film at that time called Calendar Girl who had the same UPM. Now, the UPM is the unit production manager. And whenever they do movies about movies, you always have someone playing the director and the producer and the cast. They never have someone playing the UPM. The UPM can ruin your life. (laughs) They're the ones who schedule everything. So I was doing this film in Paris, California – with this same UPM called Calendar Girl. And so they knew exactly when I finished my last scene there, drove me the two and a half hours to LAX, flew me to Chicago, got me in a car, flew me out to what, you know, drove me the two and a half hours out to Woodstocks for my first, I was first up on the first day of Groundhog Day. So I had to shoot at like 6 a.m. I arrived in Woodstock at about 2.45 in the morning which meant I was going to have about three hours sleep after shooting the other movie all day, uh-huh. which the UPM knew. But he knew that he could save maybe $200 by <laughs> cramming me into the schedule. So I basically got up and went out to that street, totally sleep-deprived, absolutely terrified, and that's when Harold Ramis introduced me to Bill Murray for the first time. Okay. So Bill is big and very intimidating, and so he's talking to Harold Ramis and then sees me, and Harold's being very courteous and saying, Bill turned on me sharply and said, okay, so what are you going to do? 
show me, show me now, show me what you're going to do. And so I said, well, you know, I was going to do, you know, bing and you know, and I started thinking, he says, okay, okay, you could stop. You could stop. That's funny. You could stop. You could do that. So it was very intimidating. And I look out and there are about 500 townspeople uh, watching the shoot. And I was feeling enormously nervous, like I was about to crumble. And Harold Ramis says, well, shall we just like go through one? Let's shoot it. Just see what we got. And I looked out and in the crowd of people, there was a face I knew. David Nichols was standing in the crowd. I had only seen David Nichols four times in my life. He's like your personal Ned Ryerson. That's just <laughs> it, it was it was maybe even my personal leprechaun. The time uh-huh. before I saw David Nichols was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire and he was there the day I got married to my wife, Anne. The time before that I saw David Nichols was the first day I came out to Los Angeles and his brother, Chris, that I knew in Dallas, told me to call David. David was working on a film called New York, New York and said, why don't you come out and have lunch with me? So my first day in LA, I had lunch with David Nichols, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, and Liza Minnelli. That was the second time. The first time I saw David Nichols was the first time I did a comedic play in my life. Well, real time. I was 15 years old. I was in high school. And our high school teacher brought in this hot young actor from Dallas, this genius, comic genius, David Nichols, to be like the guy who was going to direct me. And it was David Nichols who taught me about how to, how to do a comedic line, how to pause, how, how to accentuate, how to, how to have economy, timing, all that kind of stuff. It was David Nichols that taught me that. And now, for the fourth time in my life, Looking at this crowd of 500 people, there's David Nichols standing in front, and he gives me a thumbs up. He's like he's like a guardian angel more than a leprechaun, like um, a Clarence the Angel or something. I'm telling you. And so I suddenly – isn't it funny? The things that fill your heart up at moments you don't expect. And I was so scared and so cold and so intimidated. And seeing David smile and give me that thumbs up, I felt And I went out and did it, and we did the first take, and I think even the first take was good. I saw Harold Ramis maybe 15 years after we did Groundhog Day at a benefit, and he said, you know, with you and Bill, I used almost all first takes. Oh, man. Everything was first take. Wow. So when Bill Murray put you on the spot and said, show me what you're going to do, I can imagine a circumstance like that where you've got an idea, a basic idea, but... To be able to muster the courage to do that full out for him instead, I feel like I would go half-assed, like, here's an unconfident version of what I was kind of planning. <laughs> and then that, of course, would be the factor in shooting it down. Did you just have to kind of mentally click and go, well, it's all or nothing. Here I go. I'm just going to show him and he can love it or hate it. I mean, what was your thought process on that? I guess this is where being so exhausted, I, I didn't have the, the brain cells to make uh, those kind of calculations, which yeah. I would have done, yeah. and which I've done on many occasions and shot myself down, uh-huh. you know, because as actors, we're all our own worst enemy. So day one is sort of the setup. You've yeah. got we, – we establish this character of Ned Ryerson. He's got amazing lingo, heck fire, bing, anywho, doozy. Mm-hmm. I mean these – the great Neds in history, Ned Flanders and Ned Ryerson have a similar sort of <laughs> – I don't know, vernacular. Uh, Day two kind of cements what we see the day before and sets up what looks like is going to be a repetition, only to be undone in day three. 
which I find day three and day four very interesting, and I'm sure I'm reading too much into this, but day three seems like an argument for determinism over free will because he shoves you and you still will not stop. And it, it sort of makes it seem like time is going to go the way it's going to go and he can do nothing about it. But then day four, it's free will over determinism because Murray punches you out and is able to go on the way he wants to go. And each time they're kind of upping it. And then day five, there's no Ned. And it's we get into this existentialist thing where he realizes he's stuck in this pattern. And then we finally see you later on. And that's where he embraces you and says, I don't care where you're headed, but can you call in sick? Yeah. <laughs> now, is there a story behind that line? Uh, a lot of people asked if Bill and I ever improvised. That scene was improvised. That's great. That scene was improvised. like, And that was a first take. And uh, traditionally... Harold Ramis would always tell me a few things about directing while we were standing around because for some reason he thought I was interesting in directing, which I was. Uh But he said comedy always lives in the two shot. So he says the the idea of shooting comedy where you're always going into close-ups of people doesn't work. Over the shoulders and that sort of thing. All that stuff. He says he wants to get – He says, so what he's going to do in all the scenes with me and Bill, he's always going to have a couple cameras on the first shot that just get us both. Uh Uh-huh. And if it works that way, that's what it's going to be. And that shot, Bill hugging me, totally improvised. My reaction was totally improvised. And that was shot at the same time from two different angles. And we shot it and Harold Ramis says, we're moving. That's we're it. moving on. That's it. That's <sighs> all. And the same thing with the punch. The punch, you know, we, we got that the first time. And then I think we ended up doing four times. And Harold Ramis said, no, nah, the first one. The first one's the best. And now I have an alternate theory as to the Ned and uh, – Probably better than mine. No, no. I'm excited I to hear it. I'd like, I'd like yours, but always the – one of the issues with with analysis of that film is different scenes were cut out. And, and so, you know, different bricks in the wall were gone that were in the script. But one of the things I think that is so important about the Ned-Phil relationship and this is an exclusive. Oh, this, this is an exclusive. Second exclusive. Second exclusive. Let's bring David Nichols in here. And that is in the movie, uh, Phil Connors, Bill Murray, is begins the film as the antagonist. It is the scene with Ned Ryerson is the first scene in the movie where Bill becomes the protagonist. And so antagonist and protagonist suddenly shifts, and Ned becomes kind of this lighthearted, comedic antagonist. Uh-huh. We go like, oh, my God, this guy again. Uh, in fact, uh, someone was selling me subscriptions for the symphony yesterday, and he said, I hope you don't mind, but I named my dog Ned Ryerson. Oh my and I'm God. going like, well, I hope he doesn't tear up the pillows. <laughs> it's, and I think the reason why that first Ned scene has such impact, beside the fact that it's a good scene, is that that is where Bill's character really shifts. And as we go through the movie, his character now is able to shift back and forth between protagonist or antagonist at different times. And we become Bill from that moment on. I think that may be what I was trying to articulate it, but you did it so much more eloquently. <laughs> Let's absolutely go with that. Um, now, did you have any issues with lines doing similar scenes in repetition with similar lines that would then fork in the road off to different things? And uh, memorizing those lines, I've done some work with with very similar dialogue over time, and it just rattles my brain. 
And how was it for you? Difficult. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say now it would be impossible. <laughs> uh, it is so hard for me to learn lines that are kind of similar, and I've been doing scenes where things are kind of the same yeah. in, in different shows I do, uh, dream sequences where they're – and it's so difficult now. Uh, but back then, I recognized it was an important part of the movie that it be exact. So I really spent a lot of time in the beginning and making sure I didn't – fudge on the little differences. But it was difficult. I can imagine too. And even physically, because when you're shooting a scene, you want to keep it as consistent as possible for multiple angles and stuff. But now you have multiple days and the same arrival every time where you're mid-street and you have a certain wave and a certain posture. And physically, you have to have that muscle memory locked in Well, what we did is, um, well, what we did, I'm speaking with the royal we. Sure. What, What I did, what I did in that was take something from high jumpers. So I backed up. I, I walked back from Bill Murray when we were setting up the camera and took giant steps back to say, Phil, Phil, Phil. And I did the scene backwards to see where in the street I would start. And the street, we were shooting in Woodstock. Uh, yeah, Woodstock, Illinois, on the Wisconsin border. The street there has bricks in it. So I looked and I saw the brick I started on as my point in the sand where I'm going to run to do the pole vault. So I was able to start always at the same spot. Uh-huh. And and that usually got me going right. Uh, and your dialogue, I, I, I was trying to think of another movie that has a finite amount of dialogue, but more screen time than you would normally have for that dialogue. And I sort of think you might hold the record for that. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, Normally, that would be one scene for a person. Right. But the same dialogue repeated, though, varied, over time gives you so much screen time in this movie, but a sort of all within the same dialogue family. It's an it, interesting it, thing. It's interesting. I, I had dinner with Danny Rubin, who was the screenwriter of uh-huh. that, like about, I guess, a month ago now. It's about a month ago. And it's interesting that within this day that is repeated, that there are so many scenes, of course, that are repeated. But within the within the framework of a day, for example, my scenes are repeated as morning. Once you leave the Ned scenes, the scenes that are repeated are in the diner for for noon, mm-hmm. for lunch. And then the scenes that are repeated are the date in the evening. So even within this day, the repetition is morning, noon, and then night. And which I thought was brilliant in terms of the script and how you can have not only an entire day repeated, but so you basically have Ned in Act 1. And I had several scenes in Act 2 and 3 that were cut. Really? That we shot. What happened in those? I I know that in the last time we see you, we see you at the party, and it's kind of like you're blessed to go off to heaven. (laughs) The character's redeemed or something. But oh, that's an interesting story too. The the uh, one scene I was in, uh, he's trying to have a date with Rita. Uh Bill is trying to have a date with Rita, and I show up at the uh, ice cream store, and I am like talking to Rita and trying to sell her life insurance, and. Bill is trying to say, oh, this is a friend of mine, right? <laughs> and he's trying to t- – he's a guy I know, like a bad friend is making him look bad. And another scene of mine that was cut out is when Bill kills himself and jumps off of the tower. Oh, yeah. And I I come into frame looking at his body and goes, 
Phil Connors, is that you? Oh, bet you didn't have any life insurance. Uh, <laughs> now, I had finished all of my scenes. Uh, and to answer your very first question, it took about three weeks uh-huh. to shoot all the scenes in the street and those first scenes. And then I went home to Los Angeles and I got a call from Trevor Albert saying, we want more Ned in the movie. Can you come back out? What a great feeling. That must That's been, a great right? feeling. So I flew out and said, we're going to add you to the scene at the end with the slave auction where Bill's playing the uh-huh. piano and all that kind of stuff where you come in and you'll have some sort of scene with Bill. Well, I arrived. Uh, they brought me out for a week and they were shooting the whole slave auction scene and all, all of that kind of stuff. And then Bill vanished. He, uh, a friend of his, from what I heard, a friend of his passed away and he went to the funeral and he didn't come back. And so I'm there in my trailer and I, we're all waiting. And I asked Harold Ramis, I, I said, what are, what are we going to shoot? And he says, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with something. We'll come up with something. Don't, don't worry. Just hang, hang there. And so we only had that location for a week. So I'm sitting in the trailer getting kind of nervous, thinking like, I don't know what's happening. So I wrote a scene. And I wrote a scene where I have all the lines and Bill has the joke at the end. So I wrote the scene on a piece of notebook paper, and Bill showed up the very last day that we had that set. We had two more hours before we were going to get kicked out. And he says, okay, what do you want to do? And I gave my little notebook paper to Harold Ramis, and he looked at it, and he said, we'll do this. And he showed it to Bill, and he says, whatever, you got one shot. So the shot we did at the end was my scene that I wrote with the different kinds of insurance with, you know, where are we going? Somewhere else. Well, bing, got it. You know, so that was the scene I wrote, which just ended. We had one take, one print of that. And then we were kicked out of the location. So I think we were doing a fundraiser maybe for my Kickstarter, you know, the primary instinct for Uh my podcast Kickstarter thing. And I sold my Groundhog Day script. Uh, my original yeah. Groundhog Day script to someone for the Kickstarter. In the script is the piece of notebook paper. No kidding. That I I wrote that scene on. That's a fantastic story, and you contributed in <laughs> a writing capacity. <laughs> no small feat. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Talk about Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and some of the other roles you've done. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of Bill Murray, in your recollection, it's it seems like a lot of his uh, words to you were like, prove it, or okay, what do you got? Uh, did you find him to be very terse or, or friendly? Did he open up at times? Did you guys have a rapport? Uh, he was terse. He was prickly. He, he was uh, not friendly. However, and I've said this for the record, he is one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with. Uh, and I didn't expect that. You know, you yeah. expect working with Bill. I didn't know him. Mm-hmm. And you expect you're going to see the wild, crazy guy kind of 
you know, nihilistic, crazy Bill Murray doing whatever, jumping in sand traps out at, on the golf course and kissing old ladies. No, uh, he was very thorny, very prickly, but at the same time, on camera, every take he did, he listened. Every take he did, he was he was not thinking about what the hell am I going to do. Uh-huh. He was with you on every take. Every take was different. Uh, and he fed you. He was very generous as an actor and enormously creative. And I think it shows in the film. I think – it is one of the greatest comedic performances I've ever seen on film is mm. Bill Murray in that movie. How interesting, too, to be working with Bill Murray in that demeanor and my understanding of Harold Ramis to be sort of the polar opposite and very warm and giving, right? And totally. Did you get a nosebleed from those two no, reactions? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I certainly spent a lot of time with Harold Ramis. <laughs> yeah. You know, Harold Ramis was one of the dearest sweetest. And you want to talk about generous with his soul and with his spirit. I remember that first day when I was so nervous with with Nichols there and giving me the thumbs up. Once we got most of that scene down, and I'm sat, sit, sitting down on the actor chair next to Harold Ramis, now the load is off. Now I have two or three days to sleep before I have to do another scene. Harold Ramis volunteered this to me. And he says, you know, Stephen, it's impossible to become a professional actor. You can't do it. No one can do it without having had four heroes in their life. Yeah. Now, you don't know where they're going to come from, and you don't even know if they're ever going to come. But anyone who has ever made it has had those four heroes, four angels in their life. And I look back through my life, and it's true. And what I never got to tell Harold, of course, uh, was he was one of mine. He was one of my uh, four heroes, uh, certainly the fourth. Of really? My... The last of the four? Yeah. I think I've had a few more than four. <laughs> I needed all the help I could get. Uh, I'm such a fan, well, of both of them, obviously, but Harold Ramis, because there's something about a, a talented person who's funny and nice to me that it just seems to be the real exception to the rule, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, um, I uh, worked with a, a friend who, who came from Eastern Europe at the time, from Hungary, a director. And uh, I want to pronounce his name right, Emerico Ross. And he was always open and generous and kind to people with auditions. And uh, the guy, great artist, great artist. And I always commented, I said, how how can you do that? And he says, it's hard to be nice. <laughs> he says, it takes so much more energy to be nice than to be a jerk because you realize everybody comes into this room with a lot of dreams and everybody comes into this room with a lot of hope. And not everyone's going to leave this room with a job. He says, I feel like it's my obligation as someone who's made it to this side of the table to listen to those dreams and those hopes with respect is the best I can do is give them that respect. And that takes a lot of work. Um, <laughs> I always remember that, and it's true. I believe that too because people also come into the room with a lot of fear, and there are those people that, I don't know, capitalize on that or it fills their ego somehow. And to be nice to someone, I think you'll also get better work from them, and ultimately isn't that what you want? You want to see the best everybody can bring in and then make your decision, and it, it's rare, but it's so nice to hear that those people are out there. I, I had a very unusual experience. I, I was doing 
I think, either a network audition or close to a network audition over at Fox. And I came at the wrong time. I came like an hour and a half too early, which is not a good thing to do <laughs> uh, because they make you wait anyway. So I came there and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll walk past the room where I have to do the audition and just look inside the room so I get it. And there I looked in the empty room and there was the table at one end of the room with five chairs on the other side of the table. Then there was a video camera in the middle of the room and one chair on the far end of the other thing and my stomach went <laughs> I just went into just this panic of fear and I go it's it's the room it's the room that's scaring me so huh. I'm there an hour and a half early so I walk into the room I'm all alone and I said what can I do now to make this less scary if I were in this room what would make my fear go away oh easy if I were to take this chair, <laughs> this single chair that's in front of the video camera, and move it behind the table too, then we got six chairs behind the table and a video camera over here and no chair at the other end of the room. <laughs> that makes me feel fine. I said, so what did I just do? Oh, rather than being judged by the tribunal, I just made myself a collaborator. And I think like that's what I need to do on auditions. When I go in, no matter where that chair is mentally – I try to put myself on the other side of the table to say, okay, you're going to see a lot of guys. And truthfully, truthfully, actors out there, on every audition you go in, there can be dozens of people better than you. And, and they're not going to get the part because you are. Just because someone gets the part doesn't mean they're the best one for the job. So why not? Could It, it could be you. I, you know, to hell with an actor prepares. I think you need to write a book where <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky's physical uh, touchstones in a scene. So you've got a brick that you need to hit, a chair that you put in the right place. And for you, it's these visual <laughs> reference points. That speaks to me. I'm a very visual guy, too. And uh, I'm going to probably have to try that next time. That's yeah, yeah, good. yeah. Uh, so speaking of other acting and auditions and roles, you have countless credits on your IMDb. B page. So many of them memorable. I want to talk a little bit about Deadwood simply in a selfish way because that's maybe my favorite television show of all time. And can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to work with David Milch and the process? I understand it was a little tumultuous there at times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It was terrifying. Really? Because, yeah, you're getting really late scripts, right? If oh, you're even getting them at all? If you get them at all. It was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Uh, the... David Milch was famous for rewriting. So, so the normal day would be this. David liked to shoot with natural light, which means you have to be there before the sun is up. Ready to go. Ready to go. Uh -huh. So you have to rehearse at like 5 a.m., 5.15 a.m. So you're ready to go at 6 a.m. And this is Melody Ranch, right? Meaning you have some travel time built you in. You have travel time yeah. built in. So you're getting up in the fours, yeah. right? You're generally getting up in the fours. Um, so then you would work with the director, you would work on the scene, and then you would show the scene to David Milch, and he would come in and look at it and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then sometimes, if you were lucky, he'd say, uh, Stephen, we'll, we'll do the same thing, but you just do it like a bird. And I go, do, do what like a bird? Just do the whole scene like a bird. You know, like pretend you have a beak and feathers and, you know, fly. Just do the whole scene, but pretend you're a bird. Okay, we, we could shoot this. That would be easy. Sometimes it would be more difficult, like a scene I think Jim Beaver did, 
in which David Milch looked at and says, what this scene needs is a stampede. We need a stampede. (laughs) So instead of you two actors here talking to each other, I want you on opposite sides of the street and have a stampede going in between you and yell over the stampede. So David would go over and get 200 head of cattle, which were over there for a stampede, and bring it in and run it through. And as an actor, you know the hell you're going to go through because you don't know if a cow is going to come and charge at you or the noise or getting a looping and yelling and the trouble it's going to be to get the cattle back for another take. You know it's going to be difficult. Or it would get even worse. You would rehearse a scene and David Milch would say, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to do a little rewriting. Uh, just kind of go back to your trailers, and so you go back to your trailer, and you sit for eight hours, and then you get the call. So we've redone it. We're not doing the scene at all now. We're gonna do this next week, and then it go powers. We're gonna do your big scene tomorrow, and powers would go like what? What? <laughs> that we're supposed to do that next? Well, we're moving it up to tomorrow. So I remember one night, I. They said that a rewrite was coming. I got a rewrite at midnight in which I had one of those Deadwood monologues that's like a paragraph and a half long in backward Shakespeare and all this kind of stuff. And And the AD called me up. And said, David wants to shoot this first thing in the morning. So we're talking, you know, 5.30 a.m. And right now it's midnight. And you start with this calculus in your head, like, okay, do I not sleep and hope that I'm able to perform this in the morning? Or are we going to get there in the morning and we're going to do it and David is going to say, you know, let me rewrite it again. And I should just blow it off and sleep. And what I ended up doing was I began crying. (laughs) I began crying on the phone. And I said to the AD, I said, let me tell you, I'll do anything to not be first up. How about hundred bucks? Give you a hundred bucks to shuffle. And I says, Stephen cannot do that. I said, hundred fifty, hundred fifty dollars. Just slip me, just so I could learn this. And, and please, just please, two hundred bucks. No, Stephen, first up. <laughs> so, um, and what animal did he have you play in this? <laughs> I tell you, it was the scene that he threw at Ian uh, McShane too. So, so like we end up, neither of us know. Our lines. Ian and I do not know our lines at all. Uh So we look at each other and Ian says, just look at me. Just look at me the whole time. Whatever. So he goes, so, Mr. Jari, line. (laughs) And the script supervisor gives line. And then I go, yes, Swearingen, line. (laughs) And we go back and forth for about 15 minutes to get through this whole suite calling line, 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 line. I'm saying, this has got to be horrible. And they just cut around it? or And they cut around it, and it looked great. That's crazy. It looked, it's crazy. It looked, I, think, I think one of the funniest things is on that show is because it was so unpredictable what David Milch would do. And we shot. They never washed our clothes. They shot in every weather condition. It didn't matter. They wanted the wet. They wanted the stink. They wanted the stains. It was in one of those torrential downpours, and I was doing a scene where I had to run into the bar and talk to Powers and uh, to Garrett, and we're, we're doing some plotting against Swearingen. Uh-huh. So we do one take where we come to the bar, pouring rain. Second take, I'm walking in in a foot of mud, and there was a horse 
extra outside the door just having a horse walk. The horse couldn't take it anymore. So while we're shooting, I come in the bar. The horse comes in the bar behind me and walks up to the bar behind me. So Powers has this big speech, and he's doing it, and he starts talking about how we're planning this thing against swear engines. So he gives part of the speech to me and part of it to Gary. And then he turns to the horse and says, and, 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 I, want, and I want you to do this. You know, he, he divvied up part of his line and gave it to the horse. And, and he keeps thinking like, and then, the, you know, they call cut and Powers comes to me, Tobo, um, did David add that horse to the scene? <laughs> And I said, no, Powers, but you did just deliver part of your monologue to a horse. I love what you're telling me. I think he's just being a smartass, but the fear of David Milch and his mercurial ways means it's like, it could be a David Milch thing. He threw a horse at me. I better go with it. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Oh, I, I love that show so much. And to hear that so much of it was just put together last minute like that makes it all the more amazing. I hope footage of that horse thing exists somewhere. Oh, I'm sure it it has to. I'm sure it has to. There was a scene I had with Tim Bullock where he's taking me to jail and David said, yeah, the street's too empty. It's too empty. Let's get a bull in there. You know, get a bull. We got a bull. And so they get this huge bull with a ring in his nose and an equally big guy to lead the bull in front of me and Tim. And while we're doing our scene, in the street, the bull lifts up its tail and completely shits <laughs> on my legs and feet to where I, I mean, like huge and like a bullshit, bullshit. Yeah, Tim and I keep walking and I'm squishing when I walk, <laughs> so I realize it's going to screw up the sound. It's going. <laughs> so we stop walking and redo the scene with just me talking there, and then David yells, "Cut! Cut!" Perfect. Couldn't be better. I said, but David, the bullshit on me. You can't pay for things like that is too good. That's true. So, yeah, I I think that made the cut. I hope so. Well, uh, before we go, I have two other quick questions. One, um, if you don't mind briefly telling the story of your uh, experience with Steven Seagal. I read a little bit about that. I find this incredibly fascinating. Yeah. um, Quickly, Steven Seagal was very difficult. Very difficult. All I've ever heard. Yeah, is that. very yeah. difficult. Very difficult. So uh, I was shooting a Glimmer Man, and the director uh, John Gray was coming up to me. He says, "Stephen, Stephen, we got a problem. Stephen Seagal has had some sort of religious revelation, and he doesn't want to kill people anymore." I say, "He don't want to kill people. That's all he does in this movie." I know, I know. Anyway, he's going to try to convince you not to kill you. I said, but I'm a serial killer. He has to – I know, I know. Just just don't engage with him. Don't engage. So we go down to rehearse the scene and we – we where Stephen kills me and we talk and St- uh, Stephen Seagal comes up. You know, I was having a thought about this scene <laughs> that maybe I – it's wrong for me to put it out there in the universe that I shoot you. You know, maybe maybe I said, well, you know, Stephen, I have a different viewpoint on this. And John Gray is like waving his hands at the back room like, shut up, shut up. I have a, I have a different idea. You see, I'm trapped in my serial killer body and psyche. And in a way, you're just helping me. You're, you're freeing me from the prison of evil. And I'll be able to be reincarnated as something like good and decent. Oh, that's a, that's a good idea. Okay, let's try that. So we shot the scene where my they, he shoots me in the chest. 
he does kill me. My entire chest explodes. This brings me to another thing, as I have this fantasy of being squibbed with blood packs that, that I'm, I have a jealousy about. And uh, how was that, too? You yeah. can cover it all. Anyway, yeah. continue. Uh, my whole chest explodes because the squibs, they squib- my whole chest explodes. And then Stephen walks into frame with the smoking gun and looks down at me, cut. So I think we're done. I'm uh-huh. done with Glimmer Man. I'm dead. Three months later, I get a call from John Crisis. Uh, we have a problem. <laughs> Stephen began improvising in another scene that where he's saying, thank God I didn't kill that guy in the church. So I need you to come back in and see if you could fix that scene in looping to imply that you weren't killed. So I go to the looping room where you add lines, and there's the whole scene with me and Stephen. There's the scene with my chest exploding. <laughs> I mean exploding and me falling out of frame. And Stephen walks up, and that's when the technician said, now can you add a line here to indicate <laughs> that you're not dead? And I and Keenan Ivory Wayans was there and says, man, now we're in the realm of comedy. And he walks out of the room, and I'm saying things like, uh, it's just the flesh wound. <laughs> Thank God he missed the vital organs. You know, there's nothing to say. There's things, oh, fin- I, I think I ended up saying, finish me, you son of a bitch, finish me. Something stupid, horrible. That's the best no. you could say. I mean, That's that- awful. <laughs> I'm still alive. It's like Will Ferrell, you know, in Doctor with Dr. Evil, with Austin. I'm not dead yet. I'm yeah. badly burned. And Holy Grail. <laughs> Holy I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Steven Seagal was really something. Something. So speaking of squibs, <laughs> how many times would you say you've – ballpark, you've been squibbed? Uh, squib, squib, I've probably been squibbed just about four, four or five times on Justified. I was scared of being squibbed because I've had open heart surgery and I didn't want them to do it. And Makes they said, sense. oh, we don't, we don't do squibs anymore. We just do it all digitally. But the worst squibbing – Worst squibbing was in Radioland Murders, where I have to get shot by an airplane machine gun. Oh, my God. So they put up squibs all up my chest under under my shirt, and I'm up on a tower. In fact, we're shooting on the very same stage where Brandon Lee was killed. Oh, dear. Right? In in, in the Crow? North Carolina, yeah, yeah. In what, at Coralco Studios. So I'm up on this tower, and... The airplane is supposed to come in. I put my hands up like, no, no, no. But the reason I put my hands straight up is to block the squibs from blowing up into my face oh. and, and hurting me. So I hold my hands up, and the the squib director did that. Then the cinematographer came in and said, well, you know, if you could just spread your arms a little bit because I can't see your face. <sighs> and – I was too young or too inexperienced or stupid, so I'm listening. Well, the cinematographer stunt guy. So I listened to the cinematographer, and I opened my arms a little bit, and the blast of the squibs came right up the side of my head, and I went deaf. For how long? Deaf-deaf uh, for about an hour, and then like my hearing began coming oh. back over six weeks, and still – from that night, I lost about one-third of my hearing oh, that did not come back. Maybe I don't want to be squibbed. No, you don't want to be squibbed. But they don't do it anymore. I, it's all digital now. I'm justified. You know, they point the gun at you and a guy off screen goes, bang. And you <laughs> pretend like you got shot. It's and, a lost art. And they add blood. You may be my most squibbed guest. <laughs> That's oh, amazing. Man. My last question is more of a comment. Yeah. I noticed from your Twitter page that you uh, label yourself as a cat handler. Mm. I'm a bit of a cat handler myself. Oh, dear. And I feel 
what I assume you go through as well as I do, just the, the travails of owning a cat. And how many do you have? I have three cats, oh. and we, we have a new thing that happens now. What's that? Uh, the cats are drawn to I, – I play the piano some. So when I play Mozart, uh, one of my cats, the difficult feral cat, used to come up to me and start rubbing my legs. So I thought I should pet him to reward him because usually he's very mean and standoffish and scared. I think, you know, what would Jackson Galaxy do? So I'm like rubbing this cat, petting the cat. Now, whenever I play anything in the piano, that cat comes up and the other two cats are jealous, so they come up too. So now I can't play the piano. All I do is it becomes the cat call. (laughs) Whatever I do, I sit down, play something on the piano, and the cats come. So I think cats are really drawn by positive reinforcement, and they learn from others very quickly. So – as a cat handler, if you could get one cat to do something you like, you you really reward that cat and the others will jump on the bandwagon. Mm, that's trouble we're having is with the one cat. We just have one cat and she's she's an asshole. Well, <laughs> uh, try a little Mozart. That's okay. all I can say. I may very well do that. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a wonderful time. Thank My you. pleasure. Okay, well, first of all, a big thank you to Stephen Tobolowsky. His stories remain among the best in the business. And speaking of that asshole, my cat, Margot, the fat guy, it's a girl, it's a long story why she's called that. The point is, she's had a little um, brush with fame herself. And that brings us to a new segment that I think is just going to take podcasting by storm. And it's called... I was there, me. Margot, the fat guy, thank you for coming on I Was There Too. This is a huge pleasure for me to have you. (laughs) Well, that brings up a good point. What was it like being on Drunk History? Do you have any connection to Watergate, or how does that work? He does. And did you have anything to drink? Sorry, I didn't mean to imply anything. Now, I read this online, so I never know if it's true, but apparently when... Your owner in Drunk History says where you got to be, and you get up and run away. He called you an unsavory name, and they cut that out of the original airing. Do you care to say what it is that he called you? That's not nice. Now, you're a plus-size cat model, right? That's fair to say. That you're the fattest thing that's ever lived, and you're good with that? Well, it does seem like you wouldn't have it any other way because you sure don't let anyone rest until you're fed at all times during the day. <laughs> Say again? I see. What are you working on right now? Wow. Now, I've heard it said that Maine Coons are one of the most vocal breeds that... Oh, sorry. I hadn't finished. I'd heard it said that Maine Coon... Yes. Thank you. Maine Coons are the most... Vocal breed. Do you care to come and thank you? Okay, thank you. So even though it sounds like you're in distress, that's just an evolutionary thing where you guys were domesticated to the point where you sort of passed down this trait that if you sounded like a baby, that humans would respond to you more? And do you find that works? So you're not distressed right now. Like, this is just your normal speaking voice. And that doesn't drive your owners absolutely bonkers? Oh, it does. Well, I mean, I have to hand it to you. That's brilliant. 
It tugs at my heartstrings. God, you're fat. Sorry. And where can people find you? I heard that you had your own Instagram hashtag, is that right? Now, it's Margot with an A-U-X, like Margot Hemingway. And you were named that way because your owners wanted to think of the most pretentious name possible to fit your personality? That is true? Huh. And so the hashtag is Margot the Fat Guy. A-U-X, Margot. And you have a sub-hashtag, right, called Margot at the Movies, still Margot with an A-U-X? And that's pictures of you in compositions similar to Great Shots in Cinema History, is that right? Uh-huh. Now, is there anything you want to plug? Are you a big fat man? Margo the fat guy, I can't thank you enough for coming. Okay. I can't think. You're a beautiful fat asshole. Goodbye. I was there, Mew. Well, that's it for this fortnight's episode of I Was There Too. My thanks to Paul Shear for setting me up with Stephen Tobolowski and just for his sunny existence in the first place. This podcast comes out every other Wednesday. If you know of some guest that you can connect me to that would be perfect for this show, email me at Iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter at Matt Gorley, G-O-U-R-L-E-Y. And again, on Instagram, you can see beautiful pictures of a demon cat. Good night. Pop. 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 Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.